Hi, everybody. This is Mikey D. Welcome to my stoop. There once was a small American town, and although it sat in the forgotten corner of a giant city, it was much like any other small community around America. Everyone knew everyone else's name and everyone's business. Instead of a stream or a brook, we had the fire hydrant. We didn't have farmer's markets, but we did have a well-stocked bodega. And rather than sitting on the front porch to watch the little world fall by, we sat on our stoops. It seems like an ancient time, like it was some lost city. It was like I had watched it all from the stoops of Atlantis. Bazaar was par for the course in East Harlem in the 70s. And for the most part, there was a nonchalantness about much of it. It would be like that scene in Star Wars. Obi-Wan whacks off an arm of an alien. The music stops. All stare. Then without missing a beat, the musicians get back to work and the incident's forgotten. That's how it was. Oh look, they're lighting sticks of dynamite on Pleasant Avenue. Cool. Wow. Boom. Okay, let's go get some ices. But I remember many of them to this day. Some of the weirdness was dark, violent, and disturbing. Other times it wrote a weird line between danger and hilarity. And others just... Well... Here are my top five memorable moments of oddness. Five. Fireworks were a big part of growing up in East Harlem in the 70s. Yeah, they were supposed to be illegal, but no one cared. I could get any kind of firework I dreamed of any time, between May and August. And I'm sure I could during those other months, but for me, fireworks had a season. And believe me, I spent much of my allowance money on them. But one night, my eyes gazed at a sight I had never seen before, or since. Tony D was a fireworks conductor, a maestro. Nights leading up to the 4th of July were like his rehearsals for the big show that was coming. He would bring out a few boxes of firecracker belts, some M80s, aerial bombs, and give us all a prequel of his great explosive aria. I loved it. One summer night, the blog busy with my neighbors enjoying the beautiful weather, he appeared with something dangling from his hand. He walked into the middle of the street, a few buildings down from mine, and let the thick wire in his hand uncoil. Something thumped to the street. It was a large wad of steel wool. Using a lighter, he turned the metal mass into a fiery ball. He had obviously soaked it in lighter fluid, maybe gasoline. Lifting the fireball, he let it dangle, so the flames crept into every fiber of the lump. I stepped closer with Scott, watching curiously, as he began to slowly swing the fireball on the thick wire in an ever-increasing arc. And as the burning steel fibers scraped the street, trails of spark burst to life, and as the arc became wider, the sparks began to draw an orange curve in the air, and then the spinning became wilder, faster and more intense, as the curve became a circle, burning a giant illuminated wheel in the air around him, like Ezekiel being beamed up by ancient aliens. Showers of sparks were sent up and over the street like a sudden August rain. I could see the tiny metal balls of fire bouncing on the asphalt like electric hailstones. Faster and faster, more and more storms of sparks. Then I felt a burn on my scalp. I was caught under this fiery rain. Screams sounded, and the curious gawkers raced out of the perimeter of the fall of shrapnel. Tony was in a state of ecstasy, surrounded by the incredible sphere of orange fire. Billions of sparks showered in every direction as Tony's D's face beamed with the light of his creation. 
crowd screamed and scattered as the wishing sound of metallic fire spoke like God himself. It was beyond biblical. He had become one with the flames, a single atom in the universe of orange stars. Then, as the fuel of steel wool burned itself out, the circle slowed, the shower became a drizzle, and it was over. A chorus of cheers, like prayers, went up like audible sparks. Tony smiled, waved, and walked off. I heard a Mr. Softy truck approach, and it was time for ice cream. It was early, midweek, summer. The street was quiet, very quiet, as it was in the 70s. We were walking from the pizza place on 115th and 1st. See, there was this running bit where Chris and Scott would try to be the first one to meet me outside my building when they thought pizza may be an occurrence. Can I have your crust? was the inevitable request. I am sure they had the cash to get their own slices, and they usually did. But they were both obsessed with being handed that edge of baked dough that, at that age, I didn't really like once all traces of sauce and cheese were gone. So I would give whomever first called dibs the crust. It was kind of pathetic. So there we were, strolling the street, pizza slice 87% finished, my two drooling pals beside me, awaiting the chaff to be handed over. Not a care in the world. There's a building on the northwest edge of 118th. It sits alone above the four-story brownstones to each side the building being four or five stories higher than the rest. There was a staircase that went down into an outdoor courtyard or yard. I never knew which since I was always too afraid to go down. Why? Well, dogs maybe. I heard them barking at times. Rats? Maybe. Probably. Always that chance. Mysterious beings? Well, we were tossing a spaldine around, bouncing off the walls as we passed, throwing it up in the air as high as our skinny arms could manage, and the ball ricocheted off a car bumper, arched into the air, and landed right in the stairwell. So, who was going to go get it? We looked at each other. Chris, noshing on my crust, shook his head and pointed at me. I ain't going down there. Come on, come with me, I asked. No friggin' way, Scott said. It's got rabies dogs down there. I cocked an ear. No barking, no growling. I unlatched the gate and pulled it open, hoping it wouldn't squeal. It did. I listened again. Silence. Come on, Scott. Scott stepped up and took a step down into the abyss. I couldn't see the ball, but I could see the narrow passage at the bottom of the steps, and it was backlit by sunlight from the mysterious open area beyond. It was dead quiet. I took a few more steps, not even checking to see if Scott was following. There was a slight smell of cat pee. Finally, I made my way to the bottom step. I peered ahead. The world beyond the weed-lined passage was bright, like overexposed film, like a movie where time was drifting to the past, or to some alternate dimension. No Spaldine was in sight. I looked behind. Scott was standing a step or two above me. He had one butt cheek aimed back up for a quick escape. But I needed to do it band-aid style. Fast. I took a deep breath of pissy air and walked on elf-like footsteps through the tunnel. I came out into a blurry world where the bright early summer sun was smearing the trees and brick around me. It was like an old photograph. I scanned the yard. No dogs. No one. A small dot of pink punctuated the faded greens and browns. The ball. I beelined for it, swiped my palm at it when a figure appeared ahead of me. I looked up and made eye contact with Quasimodo. He stood over a garbage can, hunchback. One eye was closed, and the open one was bulged out from his skull, its pupil gazing off the side, 
in a perpetual peripheral gaze. His face was bulbous and puffy, pale white. His mouth twisted and a snaggletooth poked up from his lower jaw. His wet lips faded and S-shaped. We startled each other. He grunted. I dropped the ball and busted ass out of there, up the steps to the street. Scott and Chris looked at me with that nervous, energetic energy that kids get when they sense something cool had happened. The hunchback of Notre Dame, I shouted and ran. They followed me back to my building. Scott said he had caught a glimpse of him too. I finally caught my breath. I have no clue who that man was. I had never seen him before, and have never seen him again. The ball, well, I hope Quasimodo took it. Fights on my block were pretty common, especially when the weather got hot. I guess there is an obvious connection between heat and violence. Just look around the world. The places with the most violence almost always inevitably brag the hottest temps. My mom and Miss Francis were standing outside my building chatting as they often did. I was playing at the front gate. My sisters were nearby as well. I heard the shouting, the cursing, that sound of real fighting. Two guys were going at it across the street in front of the big white building. There were a few pushes, punches, and two friends jumping in separated them. One of the guys cursed loudly and rushed into the building. The other stood by mumbling to his friends. The energy of the block calmed. Fights don't just affect the fighters. Everyone who witnesses gets some sort of secondhand punch in the gut. Some folks get all excited. They get off on violence. Others laugh, a nervous reaction. And others get nervous, paranoid, scared to see someone or themselves get hurt. But normalcy returned. Across the street, wearing a bright red shirt, was Ventachinque, a tall red-headed man with a slight hunched back. He was strolling with a newspaper under his arm, a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Eugene, a nice man and an air traffic controller who would get fired by Reagan a couple years later, was hosing down the sidewalk. Kids were playing scullies, a pack of ladies gabbing on lawn chairs. One half of the fighting duo was standing by a car parked in front of my building. And then it was one of those moments, that memory trick where it was all remembered in slow motion for dramatic effect, I guess. I'm not sure why, but my attention was called up to the roof of the white building where I saw a sight I had only seen prior in police shows. The wooden stock of a rifle, with an angry man attached to it, aiming it down at his fighting partner. The words, He has a gun! was shouted by somebody. All eyes looked up and screams followed. I saw the red-headed hunchback duck into the front yard of a building. The lady scattered, kids ran. Mrs. Francis and my mom rushed into the gate and pushed me and my sisters inside as I watched the target of the rifle lying on his back and he rolled under the parked car for cover. Once inside, all went quiet. No shots were fired. The screams died down. I don't think the cops even were called. And an hour later, my mom asked me to go to the corner store to buy her some cooking oil. All was back to normal. But I recall very distinctly feeling really creeped out, stepping back outside, checking the roof, all roofs, for snipers. And that was life in East Harlem in the 70s. You just never knew. So stay tuned for the final two bizarre moments in the next episode of The Stoops of Atlantis. This has been The Stoops of Atlantis with Mikey D. Stay tuned for future tales and bizarreness from that ancient land called East Harlem. Check me out on Facebook. <laughs>